You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. We're Eliza, Allison, and Carlin, and we're the hosts of Resolved Mysteries Podcast. Our podcast follows the 80s and 90s television show Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stack. If you like true crime stuff, ghost stuff, alien stuff, this is your podcast. We do in-depth research on all of the segments that Unsolved Mysteries aired and give you the latest updates on every case. Resolved Mysteries Podcast is available wherever you get your favorite pods. Join us and perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. Hi, I'm Johanna from Austria. And I'm Annie in the USA. And you are listening to Fresh Hell, the most international of all your international podcasts. And you just heard the promo for Resolved Mysteries, a podcast hosted by three lovely ladies. At the moment, they are at season four of their podcast, so you have a bunch to binge when you head on over. Nice. We would like to welcome you to Fresh Hell, our weekly podcast where we discuss cases of a mysterious and macabre nature. Murders, of course. If you're new, we are very glad you found us. And the way our show works is we alternate choosing a story to tell you each week. And if it's one we both know, we'll tell you about it together. And otherwise, we tell each other and you at the same time. So Mm -hmm. that's what we're doing today. This is one that I'm not sure how I found out about this one. I think I read a a news article, a more recent news article, and was sort of fascinated by it. And since we last spoke, I did see Alanis, and it was the second time that I had seen her. I saw her in 1996 at Great Woods, and a little band called Radiohead opened for her, (laughs) which was interesting. Really good show. This time it was garbage, and again, great show. And if I'm honest, it seems like a lifetime between when I was 19 and when I was 44. Mm. Now, you know, it feels like, wow. It's like a different life, I know. Completely different, right? So then I came across this case, and the murder happened in 1995, and the case was solved this year. The arrest was made in 2021, and it was solved using genealogical DNA. And I think because it just happened to be the same time frame, same sort of years, it really stuck with me. What a very long time that family had to endure and wait for justice for their loved one. And it's pretty amazing that they actually finally did. This case is also going to make you very, very, very angry. So (laughs) if you have a lot of pent-up rage, I've got someone for you to focus it toward. Are there any warnings for our listeners before we start? We are going to be discussing rape as well as murder in this episode, so that's definitely something that you want to be aware of going into it. All right, let's get started. So our story takes place in Beaumont, Texas, which is about 85 miles or 137 kilometers east of Houston. And this is a direct quote from their tourism website, which we'll, of course, link to. I just thought this was, I love it. So quote, Travelers come from long distances to enjoy Southeast Texas's outdoor opportunities, including fishing, hunting, birding, paddling, and yes, holding live alligators. On the border of Louisiana, but thoroughly Texan, Beaumont embraces both brisket and crawfish, end quote. I feel like they've really let you know who they are with that last statement. That's your South Texas surf and turf, I guess, there, right? Where I live, it's it's kind of like lobster, sometimes shrimp, but usually lobster and steak. And there you're going to get brisket and crawdads. 
Is surf and turf a popular thing over there? I feel like it's a super American thing, but maybe it's been catching on, or was it always a thing? I don't know. I actually just had surf and turf when we celebrated my dad's birthday. So that's what we decided to do now for my dad, because he loved to go out and eat steak. Oh, yeah. Uh, So we still do this for his birthday. And I usually order surf and turf, but this time they fucked up a bit. Because I need my steak to be rare, which, long, boring story short, it was not. So yes, to answer your question, surf and turf is a thing. Yeah. We have uh, yeah. But it's with shrimp, usually, not with lobster. Shrimp. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the opposite. I'm the well-done steak girl. But my mom was a rare steak woman, too. Do you also like the tartars, the carpaccios, the sushi, the raw meats? Mm, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much anything raw. My dad was a great cook, so uh, that's the trait he learned, cook and waiter. Mm-hmm. And from an early age, I learned to try everything and uh, appreciate good quality food. He often made beef tata, and I ate it from kindergarten age, I think. Yeah. Everything raw has to be of really good quality, though. Don't forget that. And if you have the yeah. chance, buy meat from small local farmers, please. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Support more local farms. I am going to link to the Beaumont website so you can see all the things on offer should you visit. Another important thing to note about Beaumont is that it's really an important spot in the history of the Texas oil boom. There was already oil in Texas, but on January 10th, 1901, at the Spindletop oil field in the southern part of Beaumont, they hit a gusher. It seems like a real kind of Beverly Hillbillies situation, not in the sense that there was anybody who was poor, and then I'm sure there were, but just in the sense of what I imagined as a child, where there's just literally this geyser of oil. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, just like James Dean in Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, to quote Wikipedia, they say that, quote, the spindle-top gusher blew for nine days at a rate estimated of 100,000 barrels, which is 16,000 cubed meters of oil per day. That number doesn't mean anything to me, honestly. Americans in the metric system. It's a lot of, it's a lot of oil. Gulf Oil and Texaco, which are now part of Chevron Corporation, were formed to develop production at Spindletop. It was a lot of oil. Continuing on with the quote, the Spindletop discovery led the United States into the oil age. Prior to Spindletop, oil was primarily used for lighting and as a lubricant. Because of the quantity of oil discovered, burning petroleum as a fuel for mass consumption suddenly became economically feasible. The frenzy of oil exploration and the economic development it generated in the state became known as the Texas oil boom. The United States soon became the world's leading oil producer. End quote. You know, it was a really important part of mm. not only the history of the Texas oil boom, but really part of why America is sort of the way we are now. And in part, it's why our rail system really declined. A lot of you will remember Velisca, and even just recently when we were talking about the Adirondacks with Grace Brown, right? How they would take the train from this station to that station. There used to be railroad lines all over the country, but when oil became more popular, especially after the war, cars and trucking became more the thing. But it's clear that this particular oil field really was the start of it all for Beaumont. In 1900, there were around 9,000 residents. 
1910, 20,000 residents. In 1940, 40,000 residents, and so on. So it just keeps sort of doubling until you get Mm. to around 1960. And there were about 120,000 people living in the area in 1960. And it stayed right around that number since then. And it's here that the Edwards family made their home. Most of this information I actually got from the obituaries of both of the parents and from the older brother of the victim that we're talking about today. They all had really long beautiful detailed write-ups in their local paper, which I love it when an obituary really gives the reader a sense of who the person was. You know, it's not just a couple of names and dates. And these obituaries were really fantastic and gave you such a sense of how close and how loving this family was. It was nice to read about them. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the Edwards family. Because, you know, whenever possible, we really want you to understand who the victim was and what their loss really meant. Sometimes we don't have a lot of information, but this time we do have some. Lum Edwards II, the name is Lum, L-U-M, which is really interesting, and I want to know the origin of it, but he met Marianne Minton, and their first date was at a honky-tonk, and they sort of never looked back. It really sounds like it was love at first sight, and they were a perfect fit. They loved going out with friends, they went to dinners and dancing, they liked to play poker and entertain. They were just really fun people who worked hard and also found time for volunteer work. In 1960, they welcomed their first child, a son, who was named Lum III. And in 1963, they had twin daughters, Allison and Mary Catherine, who I think often went by Catherine. And these kids really had a very idyllic childhood. Their brother loved magic, and Allison and Catherine would act as his lovely assistants. And they had a croquet set on the front lawn, and all the neighborhood kids would come to play. This is a quote directly from Marianne's obituary. And it says, quote, The music of Broadway musicals such as Cabaret, Music Man, and Mame were constantly on the record player. Magic shows and impromptu dance numbers were a regular occurrence at family gatherings. Marianne especially loved Halloween when she would decorate the house and dress up as a witch and pass out punch and candy. The Edwards house was the center of activity for the neighborhood children. Croquet on the front yard and kickball games in the cul-de-sac were ongoing, with Marianne cheering the kids on. Summer saw the family enjoying afternoons at the country club pool and vacations driving across Texas in the Edwards station wagon. Many happy hours were also spent swimming and crabbing each year at the beach. End quote. It's funny because that obituary actually made me cry <laughs> when I was writing it up because I remember one of my best friends in high school, Jim, was once over at our house and we were just sort of hanging out and Cabaret came on and poor Jim had to sit through the entire, it's not even what we were supposed to be watching. We were going to put in a movie, but Cabaret was on the TV and Jim had to sit there while my mother and I sang every single song and acted them out and redid the choreography and oh, and we called my aunt Mame, my roommate Again, in college, Seuss and I spent... So, you know, in college when we had a TV, but not cable, because we didn't have money for that. So you get like four weird channels, you know, back in the day. And one of them was just old movies all the time. And I swear every Friday or Saturday night, they'd play MAME. And every night we would just be... Every time we'd be getting ready to go out and end up spending the whole night in robes and towels in our hair, just sprawled on the couch watching MAME. And it's kind of also the inspiration for my aunting style, you know? 
And then, I don't know, I was in The Music Man in high school. The specificity of those particular musicals was like, ooh, brought me right back to my childhood. And Lum's obituary talks about what an active and engaged dad he was and how he loved when the kids would jump off his shoulders into the pool, which we absolutely used to do that with my dad. We'd climb up onto his, he'd duck down under the water and then we'd, we'd get on his shoulders, stand on his shoulders and he'd stand back up again. And then you were really tall, you know, and then you'd dive off dad's shoulders. And it's like, I just so vividly remember that. Um, and how he would, you know, wait in the water, treading water, holding his hands, you know, his arms open, like ready for his kids to, you know, be brave enough to use the diving board. And again, it's like this family, it just takes me right back. They're just so similar to our family. Um, we didn't have a country club pool, but you know, yeah. They sound like a very lovely, tight-knit family, like picture-perfect family. Yeah, just a really, really happy family. So this is the kind of really close, loving family that Catherine and and you and I, I think, had grown up in. And she graduated from high school in 1981, and she would go on to college and then to become an elementary school teacher. She taught the second grade, and here, that's around age seven, eight for folks outside the United States, because... The grade system is different, you know, depending on where you are, but age seven, eight, that was the age she taught, same as my mom, and she loved her job and the kids in her class, and they loved her too. Every single article you read about Mary Catherine, there is a quote from one of her students, and It's not the same one or two quotes from the same one or two kids either. You know, sometimes like someone will give a quote and then you'll see it in literally every article. It's the exact same, you know, other, other yeah. people pick up on it. But not in this case. There are a lot of kids, uh, now grown adults, who talk about how she really made them feel loved, how if a parent didn't provide a snack or forgot a snack when it was their turn to bring one in, she'd go out of pocket, you know, and, and pick up snacks during her lunch break for them, that kind of thing. They just absolutely adored her. And her twin sister was also a teacher. And so she would always tell her kids that she has a sister who looks just like her. So that if you ever thought you saw her out, but she doesn't acknowledge you, you know what I mean? Like, if that happens, it's not me, it's my sister. And my dad and uncle have done the same thing. Like, my dad, when we moved from Western Mass to the Cape, my dad once got a sort of... There was a message on the answering machine like, John, did I make you angry? I, I tried to get your attention last week and, you know, at the big Y and you completely ignored me. And dad was like, oh, I didn't tell them we've moved. <laughs> It was like, I need to tell them that was my brother. Wasn't him. <laughs> uh, yeah. So now it's 1995 and Catherine is teaching and she's living in a townhouse. I was going to say alone, but she's not alone. She had a pet beagle. And neighbors in her community said she had a really regular schedule, walking her dog in the morning and in the afternoon. And a townhouse is... So a townhouse shares at least one wall with another townhouse. But unlike a condo or an apartment, they're usually laid out with a reg like a more traditional house. So maybe bedrooms and a bathroom upstairs, living, dining, kitchen on the ground floor, maybe a basement. Each would have its own yard space. Whereas with an apartment or a condo, you might have someone living you above or below you as well, right? I, sometimes they're called row houses, sometimes brownstones. You know, there's all different terminology, but you know the kind of thing I mean. Yeah, we have them like uh, townhouses and row houses. Yeah. We call them row houses. Mm. Right, yeah. So it was a nice, nice, safe neighborhood that she lived in. I think this is probably a good time to take a quick break for a word from today's sponsor, Best Fiends. 
It's that time of the year again. The leaves are starting to change color. It's not going to be long until they fall. The evenings are getting cooler again. And I'd say that's a perfect time to pour yourself a nice cup of tea, bundle up on your favorite chair and spend some quality time with your best fiends. The fun never ends. There are thousands of levels already available and new ones are added constantly. I often find myself training my bugs to defeat the slugs whenever I need to take a break from researching rippers and snippers. It's the perfect game to take my mind off murder, mystery and the macabre. I play it casually, but don't worry if you want to compete with others. Best Fiends has you covered. You can play with friends, family or your Facebook friends. We had some fun threads in our Fresh Hell group already. You know, players are connecting with each other over there. So come join the fun. And the best part, you don't need Wi-Fi or a mobile connection to play with your cute little best fiends. It even works in airplane mode. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. All right. So, Mary Catherine is 31. She's loving her job. She has an active social life. She's involved with her church. She has really close friends and family. She's living the dream. On Friday, January 13th, Catherine was seen leaving school around 5 p.m. And the next day, January 14th, her parents got worried when they couldn't get a hold of her. I think this really speaks to how close they were. You know what I mean? I speak to somebody in my family every day. In college, when it was expensive to call long distance, pre-cell phone days, maybe once or twice a week. But ever since we have cell phones and texting, I, I talk to them every day, at least text you know. Mm, yeah, same. Plus now we have this family WhatsApp groups with a lot of good morning, sleep well, have a, have, how did you sleep? What, is everything okay? It's uh, a bit like the Waltons <laughs> if they would have lived in separate places and would have had access to modern technology. <laughs> no, it's totally true. Night John boy. Yeah, it's exactly it. And it was and is still just, I think, a really close loving family. So they decided that they would head over to their daughter's house just to make sure that she was okay, make sure she's not, you know, down with the flu or anything like that. And when they arrive, her family, her mother and father go inside and her father goes upstairs and unfortunately makes the devastating discovery of his daughter's lifeless body. She was in the bathroom. Her hands are handcuffed behind her back and her body was slumped over the tub with her head in the water and her legs on the floor. She was partially undressed and had been raped. There were obvious signs of a struggle. There was bedding strewn all over the bedroom. Just It was just a mess. It was obvious there had been a struggle. And she had dozens of defensive wounds, mostly bruising on her body. So it sounds like she did put up a fight, which leads me to the question, did the neighbors... I, I just don't want to go ahead, but did the neighbors hear anything? Did they hear the dog? Wait, wait, wait. What about the dog? Yeah, no, I found nothing. And I can only think of two scenarios which maybe make sense. I should also note that there was no sign of a forced entry at all, and she was someone who did keep her doors locked, and so police believe that she knew her killer and had let him in. One theory was if her killer came in, maybe if it was later at night, maybe her dog was in a crate, and oh, hey, it's so-and-so, and he's in the area and needed the bathroom, or gosh, wouldn't you know it, he got a flat tire like a block away from here and remembered she lived there could she use her phone? You know what I mean? Like some kind of something, some sort of ruse to get inside her house and then keep her quiet. The other possibility is that this information is something, and this is what I maybe suspect, is that the police had information, but they weren't sharing it. You know, they mm -hmm. always keep something back. So I'm wondering if it's something like the dog was locked in a, a guest room or, you know what I mean? The dog was fed a treat with a sedative. I just don't know. Did she have a boyfriend or... or 
or I think, a life partner or something? I think I read in one article, I didn't get too into it only because I wasn't sure if it was accurate. One article I read said she did have a boyfriend and she had actually spoken to him that night, but that he was completely ruled out. Okay. Like he had, wherever he was or whatever was going on, he was in no way a uh, suspect, but she didn't live with anybody and I don't think anybody was in the habit of staying over at her house Mm -hmm. regularly. Yeah, the police, unfortunately, really didn't have anything except for DNA. Beaumont Police and the Texas Rangers investigated, it seemed every lead was investigated, and they had a DNA profile, but nobody who matched it. So the case just went cold, and it stayed cold. But she was remembered by the many young lives that she touched and by her family and friends, and she was remembered every year at high school reunions. But 26 years passed, and there was just nothing. Yeah, 26 years, that's... Too many years. I'm always so sad for the families. I have the feeling that not knowing what happened exactly must be so hard or not knowing, in this case, who did it. And there's mm-hmm. just no justice served for so many years. You know, holding on to the hope that one day the killer will be found and that he will be brought to justice. This must be incredibly exhausting and hard and, and, and tiring. So, t- yeah, I can't imagine because... The sudden death of someone too young is something we've both experienced, right? And that on its own is such a hard thing to reconcile and survive and live through. But when it's intentional, when someone Mm. deliberately took away that life, I just, I can't, I can't fathom it. So hard. Yeah. Okay, so... You said the case was solved 26 years later. Obviously, that means that for all that time, they held on to the DNA samples without losing the evidence, you know, to fire, to flooding, uh, or just, you know, losing it generally. Yeah. It's always so upsetting when this happens, and I'm just glad to hear that apparently here it wasn't the case, right? Right, yes. And they had even spent $10,000 on testing, which I think was a considerable amount of money at that time, um, when you look at what the budget was, you know, that sort of thing, until early this year. And the detectives on the case, they never forgot about it. The DNA was sent into a genealogical website. I know some of you probably think that I can be a little out there with this sort of thing sometimes, but they lost their brother their brother that was three years older than them, the twins, he passed away this January. So that's the second of the three siblings to pass. And they were very close to him. Do I think it's a complete coincidence that the genealogical DNA gave them their first lead? I think not long after her brother passed. I personally think maybe Big Brother was taking care of a little business on the other side, but it's okay if you don't. In any case, They get a bunch of hits, but it's nothing that's closer than like a third or fourth cousin. So they reach out to some of these people and I assume they're just like, listen, we're trying to track down someone who raped and murdered this beautiful, kind, vivacious 31-year-old teacher. And eventually they got in touch with over 30 people who were like, hell yeah, I'll help you figure out who did this. Here's my DNA and here's my family tree. You know, good luck. Let me know if you have any questions. And they got to it and it took a lot of work, but they finally narrowed it down. And boy, did they narrow it down. They were able to narrow it down to two brothers. One of them had no criminal record, but not the other one. Now, you remember I told you this episode was going to make you angry? Let's talk about the other brother. His name was Clayton Bernard Foreman, and he had gone to the same high school as Mary Catherine and her siblings. He was three years older, 
So he graduated in 1978 when she was a freshman. Catherine and her sister didn't graduate until 1981. Something else that happened in 1981 was another of their classmates, whose name has been protected for privacy reasons, but a young woman somewhere between the ages of 18 and 21 was having car trouble at a gas station. Her car was broken down. She couldn't get it to start. And so a man approached her and told her he was a police officer and asked if she would like a ride home. And she might have even recognized him because she is described as a classmate of his. And so grateful, she accepts the ride. Once in the car, he drives away from the gas station, the well-lit area, to somewhere more isolated. He tied her hands behind her back with a belt, and he raped her at knife point. Clayton Bernard Foreman pled guilty to the rape of his former classmate at knife point while impersonating a police officer. I, yeah, you're right. I'm feeling the fury rising a little bit. But uh, first, before I decide if I'm really angry, tell me how much time did he serve? Oh, that would be zero time. That would be uh-huh. zero time served. He got probation for raping a girl at knife point after impersonating a police officer. He got probation. Mm, yeah, there it is, the burning fury. Yeah, you were right. Uh, I'm, I mean, I don't even want to, to ask because <laughs> it's such a, such a rhetorical question, right? Mm-hmm. But how is it possible? You know, you're pleading guilty. Right. You're not even pretending you didn't do it. You were like, yeah. yep, I did do it. Yeah. I did that. Yeah, fine. Okay. You get probation. Thank yeah. you. I think. How? Why? How's that fair? Yeah. His, his, the judge didn't want to ruin his future with a record. He was from a wealthy family and it would be cruel to imprison him. So he wouldn't, cause he just wouldn't adapt well. He knew her. So it really couldn't be that bad. I mean, these are literally yeah, the reasons that judges have given for, for probation. The following year, so in 1982, after not going to prison for raping his former classmate, Foreman gets married. And in his wedding, Mary Catherine was a bridesmaid. So he knew her. I don't know how anybody knew, didn't understand or know that he pled guilty to a rape. Like, I guess, I mean, they must have known, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I guess so. Yeah. But she was in his wedding. They knew each other. And he and his ex-wife both attended her funeral. Not only that, but you remember those high school reunions that I mentioned where everybody was really missing her? Well, he had so kindly offered to take over the job of handling the in-memoriam part of each reunion. So he raped and murdered her. He went to her funeral and then every single year put together the memorial for her at their class reunion. All of his classmates described him as a super nice guy. Mm, yeah, he was such a nice guy. They always he was are. just a rapist. Yeah. Just apart from that one very violent rape, great guy. He was living in Ohio and engaged again, I think. I'm not going to bring her into it either because it's, it's not their fault. And so once they narrowed it down and they thought they knew who it was, they found his place in Ohio, they staked it out, and when he put his trash out, they grabbed it because that's allowed. Once something's on the curb, it's like no longer your property. And they went through it and they were able to get a DNA sample. And finally, they had their confirmation. It was a match. And the man who had brutally raped a young woman 26 years before had, surprise, surprise, done it again. And he killed his victim the second time. And the police do not think that those were the only two crimes he committed. And I agree with that. 
So if you're listening to this and you are someone you love or know had a similar sort of assault in the Beaumont, Texas, or Ohio areas, please do call the Beaumont police at area code 409-832-1234 and report it. So many questions that won't be answered. How did him pleading guilty, even if he was only sentenced for probation, how did it not go on a record somehow, somewhere? Since, mm-hmm. since when do you have sex offender registry? Yeah, not until after his crimes had occurred. And okay, because... So, yeah. Yeah. So way later. Way uh, later. But, okay, but usually in a case like this, wouldn't the police look for people who already came in contact with the law for similar crimes? Like in this case, a man she knew who was a sex offender. I mean... She was a bridesmaid at his wedding. It's not like they saw each other at the bakery every once in a while. They right. knew each other. Exactly. Yeah, I I honestly don't know. I, the only thing I can imagine is that at that time, everything would have been paper records, probably, right? It was 1981, yeah. 1982. Sure. So nothing is computerized. It probably would have gone very differently today. And I think I'm just really grateful that they were able to hold on to that DNA sample. Yeah. Unlike, you know, so many that end up getting destroyed. But yeah, I think once they had his name and saw his record, then they were like, oh, look at the similarities, the similarity in the way that they were assaulted, the way they were the way they were bound. They used in the first one, he had claimed to be a police officer and Mary Catherine was bound with handcuffs that were sort of um, like regulation police issue. But they tried to trace the serial number, but there were just so many. It was just such a common handcuff, I guess, that it, mm. it led nowhere. But they did wonder whether there was a... Um, I think the way the articles all described it was that he had impersonated a police officer in the first rape and in the rape and murder had used tools that police use. So that sort of thing. So I imagine he probably had some, some kind of, um, what's the word? He, he liked the power he had over people, Mm. you know, he liked to be in charge. They arrested him and he's in custody now. Yeah. He's awaiting his trial. He's behind bars. That's right. Yes behind bars where he belongs. He was taken into custody in Ohio on April 29th, 2021, so less than 5 months ago. This is this is just happening. I think this is the one of the most up-to-date cases that we've done. Yeah. Yeah. And so Texas has charged him with capital murder. I think they may be seeking the death penalty. And apparently just recently he was supposed to be transferred. He just refused to leave his cell in Ohio and I I so want more information about exactly how that went because I keep imagining like the doors open and he's like that he's this old ugly he's gross he looks as gross as he sounds he's just gross and I keep imagining him and they slide those doors open and they say okay time to take you to Texas where they're probably gonna electrocute you or whatever and then i just imagine he just like grabs onto the bars and they're pulling his legs like come on and he just yeah no you'll never get me out of here i don't really know how it went down and i don't care about laughing about him because he's horrible (laughs) but as of mid-june he is in texas and he is behind bars and that is it and i'm gonna have to keep you posted as the case continues to unfold but I'm just so glad he's behind bars. Yeah, just really glad he's behind bars. And I don't know, you know, people talk all the time about closure. 
I'm honestly not sure that closure is really a thing that you get when something like this happens, you know? I think, though, that there is at least the relief that this person can't hurt anyone else now. I think sometimes people talk about closure and what they what they mean when they say it. Is it something you're going to let go of now and be fine with? And I think you get closure with, in my experience anyway, you get closure with breakups. You get closure with the ending of jobs and sometimes the ending of friendships, but not when a life is taken. And I mean, even in those cases, it's often hard to find closure. That's Let's be honest. And how hard must it be? That's the thing. If a loved one gets murdered. I can't. I just, yeah. I, I can't, I can't, I just can't imagine. You know, it's the people I've lost, especially April and Adam, the young people. And I, I don't think you ever get over, there's no closure. You accept it. You sort of, that grief becomes a part of you and you sort of learn how to carry it and you move forward, but there's no closure. I think there is at least, though, the relief that this person, he can't hurt anyone else. At least you don't think that they're out there hurting someone else because I think he probably did hurt other people, don't you? I think he may have told other people he was a police officer. And that would also really explain mm -hmm. why they wouldn't have come forward because if they thought a cop had raped them, I just can't see... Him only doing this twice in 26 years, you know, like he did it the once and, oh, he was lucky. He got away with it. So let's never do it again. And he just didn't for 26 no, no, years. No. Yeah, no, I agree. He got away with it for too long uh, to only do it to two women. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And he escalated really quickly, Yeah, you know, from horrible rape to horrible rape and murder. That's right. Maybe, maybe too quickly the escalation there. Maybe there were not only more victims after Catherine, but also before Catherine, after he had raped the first woman. Well, the first woman that we know of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could have been more before her. Who knows? I think this is it. And we know he had, I believe he had three, I think he has three ex-wives, two or three ex-wives. Again, I didn't look too into it only because from the beginning, I was like, I'm not going to talk about them because I have a feeling that they were probably, they might have taken the brunt of his, what, I don't even know what the right word is. Do you know what I mean? Abusing them might have satisfied that thing in him. I don't really know, but I would suspect that there was abuse. It's just so sad. And I'm also just so, so glad for the family that they finally, they finally got this person behind bars that did this to her, you know? I mean, it's, it's... I'm so glad after 26 years this, this person was brought to justice. Unfortunately, there are far too many out there all over the world. All over the world, you know. But I think a case like this shows that you, you can never give up hope on finding some of the perpetrators. No, that's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm just glad for the survivors that, that we know of. I think there are a lot more. And that was the very, very tragic but finally solved case of Mary Catherine Edwards. She was a really, just a bright, beautiful woman taken away from her family and those who loved her far, far too soon. They also lost their brother at the beginning of this year, as I mentioned. So we're thinking of them, that whole family, if any of her relatives are listening. We're thinking of you. And in the same vein of people we have lost far too soon, we have some very sad news to share. You may know friends of the show, Melissa Morgan Humphreys and her husband, Mark Humphreys, from Just the Tipsters podcast. Unfortunately, Mark passed very suddenly and unexpectedly from what we believe was a heart attack this past week. And 
If you could please do whatever it is you do, say a prayer, send good vibes, send healing thoughts, whatever you do to send love towards someone, please direct it Melissa's way as she goes through this just impossibly hard time. Mark was an incredibly talented musician, as well as an all-around superb sort of human, and he's going to be deeply missed. We are thinking of you, Melissa. We love you, and you've got this. It's going to be all right. Yes, Melissa. Just keep going. Yeah. That's, yeah, I'm I'm still without words. Something good. What you got? Something good. I'm very grateful for the beautiful early fall weather we have at the moment. It's sunny, but perfectly, you know, this kind of temperature, not too hot, not too cold. Mm. You can wash your laundry and hang it outside in the sun. And we went on Sunday, we went to a Greek restaurant to celebrate my sister's 31st birthday. And it was so lovely. We could uh, sit outside in the inner courtyard with both sides of the family together, which was very nice. And her, her son, my nephew, organized the whole surprise party, kind of. He's 12 and it was so cute. I love that. He made a cake with my mom. Yeah. So that's my something good. That's awesome. How about you? Yeah, mine's also family. I'm so grateful for our handy friends and family. I've mentioned before that we have this little family cottage on the Cape that we've had since, well, the early 70s, before I was born. Our friends and family, especially Misty, Joe, Kate, and Jim, have just been so incredibly helpful in painting, removing wallpaper, fixing broken things. Like, they have... It's been amazing, and we're so incredibly grateful for the help that our friends and family have given us to keep our little our little cottage. You know, it's um, we're just feeling very lucky. Yeah, so thank you, guys. If you enjoyed this episode and you are looking for ways to support us, please do us the huge, 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 huge favor and go to iTunes and I think now Spotify, right? Stitcher, maybe I'm not sure. Audible. Check your podcast app that you use. If you could leave us a rating and or review, that would really help us out a lot. Um, other ways to support us. You can go and check out our Patreon. If you like, we have three tiers. Go to patreon.com, search for Fresh Hell, and we pop right up. Or you go to our webpage, freshhellpodcast.com, where you find all the links to Patreon, to our merch store with our amazing t-shirts and cups and whatnot a link to our email to our PO box if you want to get in touch with us and to our Facebook group which is also very lovely it really is and as always please tell your pets we said hi we love them we miss them hug them cuddle them give them a lot of treats today yes just because it's Wednesday well and they need to start bulking up for winter really don't they (laughs) it's true it's true yes I mean depending on where you live but uh, yeah yeah, there's always a reason for a treat they are good pets they They are are really the greatest pets the best pets yeah be kind to your fellow human being that's at least once and that's it and until next week if you're going through hell keep going tschüss bye